Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media or visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com. This is the second part of the Boston Biotech series produced in collaboration with the Professional Development and Career Office at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. In this series, we talk with alumni who work in the Boston biotech ecosystem. If you are a Hopkins student, we encourage you to join the online Boston Biotech community on the OneHop platform to connect with the podcast guests, as well as other JHU alumni who work in Boston, the fastest growing biotech hub in the United States. You can find the link on our website at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com or in the show notes. My name is Jenna Glatzer, and I'm joined here with my co-hosts. Hi, I'm Roshan Chickermane. And I'm Joe Barrielli. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Ellers. He's currently the Chief Scientific Officer and Venture Partner at Apple Tree Partners, a life science venture capital firm that creates companies at various stages from PIP to spinouts and invests in biotech companies from pre-seed through to IPO and beyond. He's also CEO of Limelight Bio, a biotech startup developing novel gene therapies, and he's president and executive chair of Allos Bioscience a biotech startup developing immuno-oncology therapeutics. Before his current roles, he served as EVP and head of R&D at Biogen, SVP at Pfizer's neuroscience division, and was a professor of neurobiology at Duke. He currently holds PhD and MD degrees from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So to start things off, could you tell us a bit more about Apple Tree Partners and the two portfolio companies that you lead? Yeah, sure. I mean, Apple Tree Partners, we're a venture capital firm. And as, as uh, you mentioned, Roshan, we are mostly in the business of creating new companies. We really work to partner with founders and entrepreneurs to turn breakthrough science into companies that are able to create highly impactful medicines for patients. Uh, So we kind of operate at the frontier and the interface between emerging science from academic labs or wherever we find it and converting that into a bona fide drug discovery platform and program. Awesome. And uh, just so we can get a sense, uh, what are the Are there any types of themes um, that the firm typically invests in, certain therapeutic areas or certain types of platforms or single assets? Uh, I would say our theme is that we follow the science and the unmet medical need. We're largely agnostic about therapeutic area, by and large, but we we follow the biology. We sort of go where we think there's there's a real need in terms of either the technology is breaking that can address diseases maybe we haven't been able to address before, or there's an area where there's just clear unmet medical need uh, and there's an insight into how to intersect the biology that could make a difference there. Um, We also look, whether it's uh, individual asset or platform technology or things like that, this is another thing where Although we often gravitate towards some of the platform technology, we'll do it, any of the above. It's about what makes the best sense to create new drugs. 
So I'm curious a little bit about your personal background. What made you interested in science and also what made you decide to pursue an MD PhD degree in particular? Uh, that's a foundational question. Um, so I was the very typical nerdy kid that always wanted to do something like that when I was just a, just a kid. And then, you know, probably that I'm not an outlier for those listening to this podcast, I imagine, in that regard. So I was always that kind of kid. You know, I'd get microscopes was for gifts is what I'd want. And I'd be turning over rocks and, and you know, dissecting things that were just of interest and doing all that. Um, so it was always, I was always curious about those kind of things. And I liked a lot of different kinds of science, actually. Um, initially, was really going to do much more in fact, I started out doing more physical science. So I was really in college was, uh, did primarily physical and organic chemistry and came sort of late into the game there into biology, which, uh, because I was a very math oriented and physical science oriented kind of guy. Um, and so that's, a, that's sort of how I got into science on the MD PhD side of thing. I guess. With complete candor, I think lots of people who pursue MD-PhDs are in the category of unable to make decisions right, right away sort of thing. And that was probably me as well. There was just so much. I, I mean, eventually you have to start making decisions, right? But it's uh, it was uh, I knew I wanted to do uh, pursue research in some way, shape, or form. I was very interested in human biology and being able to have an impact in human health. And it seemed like a natural way to be able to figure out where in that broad spectrum uh, you might be able to land. And I would say that although, I don't know if we'll go there, but although I don't see patients and I did not pursue further uh, clinical training after my MD-PhD, that MD part of it has proven to be, uh, particularly from Hopkins, I might add, putting a bullet in, plug in here for Hopkins, was, has been very, very helpful and useful, just the breadth of uh, human biology, pathophysiology, pharmacology, and stuff that you get, which I end up using all the time in my, in my current role and in the previous roles that I've had, too. And then I'm also coming from the Department of Neuroscience. I know you did your thesis work in Rick Huguenier's lab, correct? Um, and so just to name a few of your contributions, of which there are many, um, a lot of work was done, you know, studying the mechanisms behind trafficking of um, something called an NR1 subunit of an NMDA receptor, which is an ionotropic glutamate receptor present mostly on postsynaptic membranes of neuronal synapses. Um, also looking at its regulation by calmodulin and experience de dependent remodeling of prosynaptic proteins. Um, so I'm curious, given that that was a relatively sort of nascent field of biology at the time, what attracted you to synaptic biology in particular? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I, I just have to say that I owe a tremendous amount to Rick Huguenier, actually, who met... I, was highly influential in my career and personal trajectory and tolerated me in his laboratory when others might not uh, have tolerated me and um, 
kind of kept me in science in a lot of ways. In a way. So I'm, I, I, I remain very close with Rick and I'm eternally grateful for the fact that he saw something in, in this occasionally disgruntled graduate student in the lab that uh, prompted him to um, keep me around and, and that ended up being quite a success story actually. So I'm very grateful for that. But uh, um, yeah, in that particular field, look, I'd say it was, it was a very exciting time in that field. A lot of these receptors had just been cloned. You know, the, the ionotropic glutamate receptors had very recently been cloned. There was very limited molecular understanding of them. There was a deep pharmacological understanding of them. That's how they'd been characterized. And there was just hardly anything known about uh, at the molecular biochemical level of these. And, and Rick's, Rick, Rick's lab and Rick was a real pioneer in converting this from a pharmacology and a physiology into a biochemistry. I just thought that was good. That was a very interesting thing to do. Uh, plus, I was attracted to the idea that you could really get to a granular mechanistic level on this otherwise somewhat uh, almost metaphysical property of the brain, which is things like learning and memory and uh, uh, and plasticity. That I that still is a incredibly fascinating area. So those were all really of high interest to me. I love the notion that you could maybe break this down into core molecular mechanistic detail. And it was just a particularly exciting time with the advent of the cloning of these receptors and many of their associated molecules. So I'm interested in your transition from science to venture, because um, as was previously stated, you were a professor for a while um, and authored many really, really interesting papers, even as a grad student, authored many, many interesting papers, uh, record states more than 100 scientific papers. Why make the switch to industry at all from being a professor? Yeah, I get that question quite a lot. And to be honest, actually, the bulk of my career post Hopkins has been in academia. I was 12 years on the faculty at Duke. And I'm only now catching up to that in terms of uh, my industry experience. And I, I loved it. You know, I had a fantastic laboratory, uh, fantastic students and postdocs. Uh, many of them, in fact, the vast majority of them are in incredibly successful. Many of them are faculty members at top places doing really cool stuff. And I'm extremely proud of all of, uh, all of them. We had a, we had a fantastic group that, grew and evolved and changed over time. And I keep, I keep in touch with many of them, probably most of them. Um, and let's see, you know, in terms of the transition, I had, um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the world's biggest fans of curiosity driven research. And I really love that. And it is, it is the cornerstone of academic research that should always stay and remain there for sure. Cause that by and large doesn't get done so specifically in an industry setting really at all. And, but I'd started to, to really get interested in how, and I was a very basic biologist. Like I did very basic cellular and circuit neurobiology, but I'd started to get interested in how that might impact uh, human disease. I'd gotten involved in, in small ways in advising select companies and uh, being on certain scientific advisory boards and got just a, more exposed to people who were thinking, not just in a translational way, but
but in specifically in a drug discovery and development way. And that was appealing to me because it was, you needed to know the biology in detail to create this miraculous thing, which is a molecule that is a drug that does what you want to right in the midst of the biology to impact disease. And I just thought that was, you know, one of the coolest things. And, uh, and probably it comes from being, having been trained in uh, Saul Snyder's department, right? Where some of the foundational notion of how it is that you understand some of the most complex biology is by the uh, either naturally occurring or non-naturally occurring compounds and things that impact the biology in an important way. And, and Saul was a pioneer in all that in terms of neuropharmacology. So that was all of interest to me. I think, and I was getting more exposed to it. You know, I also think there was a, there's just a part of me, and this is not necessarily something I recommend to everybody in it, is that uh, I guess there's a part of me that I just get bored of at times. And I, I look for new challenges and things. And I know, you know, often I've recruited so many academics now to industry, senior, junior, you name it, lots, is for me, it was not this phenomenon of, oh, I can't get my grant, yada, yada. It's too frustrating. I mean, I had, I had more grant money than I could spend. I was a Hughes investigator. It was none of that. So, and that's, by the way, in terms of a piece of advice, something I would advise. Make those kind of career transitions because there's more of a pull or an inner impulse or you think there's a fit or you or you see that i that you identify the prospect for real professional growth in a way that you think could be different uh, rather than getting to the point where it's oh i got to do something different now type of thing that was not the case for me at all uh, because i loved it i could easily imagine going back to the right academic thing if it was something new and interesting and i'd gotten ex exposed to it um, i will say that uh, Lots of people thought I was crazy. And it was very bimodal, which is there was a big mode of people that thought, Mike is crazy. Name professor, he is investigator, all this stuff. What, you know, what more? And in fact, the Mike Ehlers of 15 years beforehand definitely would have been in the crowd saying, you're crazy, or even 10 or five. Uh, and then there was sort of a smaller mode that was like, well, this is really great. This, these are exactly the kind of people we need to get into the business of finding new therapeutics that uh, can have an impact for uh, patients. And what a great new challenge. So that was a little bit of, of, my, of my thinking. And I can tell you one thing I found in a couple of these transitions is that the in each case, what has ended up having the biggest impact was being willing to take a leap where you don't really know, and you're not 100% sure if someone packed the parachute. And it was not that different from going from the MD-PhD program at Hopkins and then just doing straight research, right? Because you pursue... Uh, for the clinical training, residency, and everything. I mean, everyone knows that path. It's a fantastic path. But there's something secure about that path, right? That's not secure about pursuing its research path. Um, 
I've just been the kind of person, I guess, that has is willing, perhaps irrationally, to uh, jump out of the airplane when I'm not really sure if I've packed the parachute properly or not. And it's worked out great. Yeah. So you talk about this idea of the types of creative, creative scientific activities that happen in academic uh, research. And one of the big, I think, barriers in people's thinking of why I should stick with academia and not move into industry is the idea that there's not a whole lot of creativity and creative freedom that's expressed in industry. Like there's, you know, you have to stay in your swimming lanes. You just have assays that are sort of like preordained that you're running. Uh, But sort of knowing what you know from your time at at Pfizer and at Biogen, um, how much um, creativity and intellectual freedom goes on in the types of discovery work that occurs in R&D? Right. So I put this in the category of select myths of moving to industry. And in fact, for those who want a more detailed description, I will shamelessly point out that I wrote a review in Cell five years ago that's called Lessons from a Recovering Academic. You can PubMed it. Uh, And it goes into more detail. And I still think it's relevant uh, today. Um, I think that's largely a myth. And I'll tell you the reasons why. I mean, what I have found, let's, let's start with the, is it, I think an undertone of what you're asking there, Roshan, is, is, is it the same intellectual challenge? And I would say it's, it probably is, it may be even more so because the, a difference is with curiosity driven research and stuff, you're like, ooh, you can be like, this is interesting, let's go there. And then you have to think about how do I unpeel this, this interesting thing I found here? Where might that lead? When you're in the drug discovery business, you've got a horizon goal. And you're not really sure how to get there, but you've got to end up somehow over there. And now that may seem like a constraint in a way, but I think it's actually uh, intellectually more challenging in some aspects, which is you have to bring together many disciplines. You become, I always say I learned in terms of different scientific areas and different areas of medicine and regulatory and commercial and, you know, from med chem to clinical pharmacologists, you, I probably learned 20 times as much in my first five years in industry that I did during my academic uh, career. Uh, And that is largely just around the number of disciplines you have to stitch together, regardless of what level you're at, because you're working on uh, this big, this team-oriented activity to get to that miracle, which is a drug that gets to patients. So I think it's a so I I think there's a tremendous intellectual challenge in it. Now on this question of can you pursue the stuff that you want, there's two sides to that. One I would say is most of the time. No, people don't necessarily have a good idea of how to get there. And it requires the creativity towards how do you measure this thing you need to measure? You talked about like setting up an assay. Setting up an assay is sort of figuring out how do I measure something that's relevant? How do I measure it to scale? 
how do I measure it in a way that's sufficiently reproducible that uh, it holds true across a whole drug discovery and development path? And that requires a lot of creativity. And, and good places, I think, in my experience, provide enough latitude to say, here's generally the goal. And yes, there, there might be sort of, I don't know if it's a swim laner saying, we've got constraints within that goal, which is to say, we, we want to be able to measure X or do the following, and we need to do it to this scale. So how would you go about doing it? And I've found, I've, as far as I can tell, I've never really had some committee somewhere say, go, thou shalt you know, work on this one thing. I haven't, I haven't really seen that very much in the places I've been. The flip side of all this, too, is, okay, so there is definitely some structure to it. But let's not fool ourselves here, right? Which is, in it, like, and I had tons of freedom in academia, so my case might have been an exception. But broadly speaking, you're free in academia to do whatever you want, provided you can get funded to do it. That ends up being a, a bit of a self-imposed uh, set of boundary conditions because you end up with a track record. And then unless you're, you are fortunate to have flexible funding like I did. So, you know, that's, that's good. But if, but for most are sort of contemplating an earlier stage, you can basically, you can get funded to do what you've got a track record to do. And that's a feedback cycle that can, you know, be a constraint. Right. So, um, that's why I think there's two sides to it. I think there actually is quite a lot of flexibility and freedom, whether you're in small biotech and large biopharma, you know, kind of depending exactly what you're doing. And on the other hand, don't, you know, academic freedom is freedom to do what you want, provided you can get funded to do it. Yeah, this perceived conflict between academia and industry has always kind of baffled me, especially because so many professors are working on translational research, right? They ultimately want to see their research translated in some, to some sort of therapeutic that can really help people. Um, and in industry R&D, if you find something like that, the environment is such that that can really happen, right? I think there's less and less of this type of conflict. Um, and I know this is sort of sponsored by the Boston Biotech thing. And it's the Boston-Cambridge area is the hallmark of what happens when you don't have those boundaries. And the places that do have those boundaries, guess what they don't have? They don't have that sort of biotech type of scene, right? Because the vast majority of the frontline innovation happens in academia. But almost all the drugs are developed by industry. So I, I just... I reject the notion that there's a need or should be an inherent conflict in those things. And I think we've gotten better at understanding the right ways to interface between different sectors, to have enough porosity between those boundaries to enable science to have an impact. Because right? what a shame if science is done and it doesn't have an impact. And and what a shame for it to be slowed because the industry that's that can develop and do that is not at the front line of innovation. So I think it's I 
but I go back to one clear statement. Don't get me wrong. I do not. I don't see academia as just being the discovery engine for uh, the biopharmaceutical industry. That is not the purpose of it. So, you know, scientific research, and I think there's not enough, by the way, basic bio, biology research that need not have, you know, the sentence or two in the grant or whatever it is that says it's going to, you know, cure diabetes or something. I think there needs to be more foundational, basic research across the board. That is the limiting factor. And at the same time, I think that there needs, uh, there should always be that close collaboration on those things where industry experience in that, and my current world in VC, you see it. And you see it in a way that maybe uh, as a graduate student or postdoc or professor X doesn't see it. But that being able to see something different and the opportunity it might produce could lead to something really innovative and novel. So uh, I think what, you know, the, the, the kind of historic notion that these should be always and forever kind of fully separate and so forth, I, I don't really agree with. I think you can do it in the right way. And, it, and when you do it in the right way, it has big impact. So we've talked about some of the ways that moving into industry has enriched you uh, in, in, as a person and in your career. What was one thing that was uh, especially difficult um, early on in your your industry career, and and maybe what would you have liked to have known um, before jumping into industry that that um, making that role? How long is this podcast? I could. Uh, uh, that's a long list, long list of things. Um, um, yeah. So the. Well, if you go back, so, I mean, it was 11 years ago when I moved to industry and kind of in the setting I was going into, there wasn't really anybody like me. So I, I, and I, I'd say the thing I did, I think helped me is I was freely humble and open about the extent of my ignorance, which was vast. And I look back at it now and I am just like, I can't even believe how, ignorant I was about a lot of those things, but I had the self-awareness to know that I didn't know a lot of things. Uh, and so what I did not do was come in as the exalted professor who's got solutions to everything relative to these incredibly talented scientists, technologists, clinicians, and things that have been working in the area and their disciplines and stuff for years and do a lot more than I did. Um, so you got to go into it with a lot of humility, right? Cause you'll be, you know, people who make an academic industry transition, they will be expert in a very, very, very focused area. And then you almost immediately need to step out of that and um, and shift your thinking. I describe it in the cell paper I was talking to you about is you have to shift from being in cell mode to where you're then in buy mode. And what I mean by that is when you're pursuing academic research, there's a natural selection because you ha you have to do this which is to describe the uh, importance of your research and that can often lead down into the your you know whatever it is whatever enzyme you're studying or whatever cell biological phenomenon is going to be 
the solution for cancer, Alzheimer's disease, um, and you name it. And you have to kind of do that in papers and grants and things. Like that. So in other words, you get into this sort of cell mode. When you're in industry setting, because you've got this horizon goal, and eventually you're going to find root truth here, which eventually it's either going to work or it's not going to work. There's no like you publish the paper and walk away, right? It's it's going to keep going. And so you're you can be much more in this buy mode where you say, or one thing I always I almost always ask people about is say, okay, if you're doing that experiment, uh, tell me what the possible results are and what decisions you're going to make. And what I never accept is someone say, well, I'm just going to look and see. Because this is one big difference, which is I think in an industry setting, you do experiments to make decisions. It's not specifically about making discoveries. It's about making decisions that guide you along the path towards making a new drug. I think I veered away from the question you were asking, but... Um, yeah, it, it was kind of a, a broad question. So um, it I, it was a really nice answer, though, uh, to get an idea of that that change in perspective, which um, doesn't happen overnight. I mean, I'm sure it takes a long time to sort of yeah. I mean, program. Yes, and he, well, I was going into what I had to kind of do to that I think helped succeed, and I was also trying to describe the things I've seen that have tripped people up when they've moved into it. Um, and maybe I'd kind of couch it from that. I mean, one is you got, you've got to shift away from this sell mode to buy mode. Second, do experiments to make decisions. A third key thing is the most valuable people are the people who do experiments that kill your project. Those people are gold. That means being clear-eyed about the data and rigorous in the design. All right, you don't need positive data. You better not be fooling yourself that it's positive because it just keeps going. It just gets more expensive. It's um, so people who can kill programs through rigorous experiments are, are gold to me. Um, that, that's an, a, and, a, and a big one. And I'm sure lots of people think about this is, is how to function and communicate and, uh, uh, and become accountable in a team oriented work environment uh, because it is it's much more team oriented than a lot of traditional and I, I know there are different styles that labs run and everything in academia and sometimes there can be those things but by and large you are automatically in a team setting in industry and there's a there's a big premium on team oriented behavior and effectiveness and how you do that so that's another those i think are also important things for transitions so what did I have to learn on this a ton? I mean, there were lots of, I, I guess I went into it with a little bit of a core ability, which is I'd been in chemistry. So I, I knew about that. I'd done a reasonable amount of different cell biology related stuff. I had the benefit of Hopkins and, you know, MD, I guess. So I knew it found enough medicine to be dangerous in that regard. And, um, and that that was sort of the foundation. Then, you know, you have to learn a lot of other stuff. You've got to, you've got to, I mean, there's just lots of discipline science. So I could go into so many. You need to learn the, some principles about the modalities you work in. If it's small molecules, large molecules. So I, I had to learn aspects of medicinal chemistry and 
pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and drug metabolism and protein engineering and antibody design and lots of areas of biology, you know, you know, um, regulatory science in that regard of things are sort of regulatory requirements. You have to learn a lot about organizational leadership. I was mentioning team effectiveness, but everyone in industry is both at some point, depending on where you enter, you're very typically on a team, lead a team and are led by a team or led by a manager. Right. And it's, it's being able to be effective in, in that kind of environment and in those dimensions, something you have to learn. How do you get, uh, I think in academia, people talk a lot about, and Hughes writes a book on, Howard Hughes writes a book around this, about how do you go from being a postdoc to managing a lab and you've got all that kind of stuff. Now think about it at a different level where you, now you have to, maybe you're running a project team. Maybe you've got accountability for this area of um, biology on a program. Maybe in my case, I sort of came in and I had to, I started running a 150 person research unit and sort of then how do you make, how do you bring those pieces together and work together? It's a lot different than saying I've got 10 postdocs each with a project here go. It's no, I've got, I've got 10 postdocs and they all have to work on the same project in a very coordinated way. That's a different skill set, actually. Um, so you have to learn a lot and I, uh, you end up learning a lot about what it takes to get into clinical development too. So that's a lot, um, very different thing in some ways doing clinical experiments, but that's what early development is. It's clinical experiments. And then there's a little bit of the art of running large trials. You know, you might get to a point where you're doing that. There's different stuff you could learn. People take different trajectories, right? Which you might get to, um, you end up pursuing science both internally and externally. And I might actually touch on that. That's another very important thing, which is you need to be agnostic. It doesn't matter whether or not you are doing the experiment or whether you found the best lab or the best CRO in the world who could do the experiment. That's another different thing. There's no credit seeking. You're, it's, you do it in the most efficient way you can. And increasingly, especially for advanced degree trained scientists, okay, a lot of stuff in the biotech and biopharma world is being good at managing collaborators and CROs. In other words, stitching together the components where you're directing experimental activity rather than, you know, yourself, uh, you know, sitting there and dosing mice or something like that. So those are all the kinds of skills and sets of things that I think you have to learn it, learn and experience going into an industry setting, almost regardless of the type of setting. Yeah. So I think some of those topics that you brought up, um, effectively working in teams and uh, recruiting collaborators and working with collaborators, play into our theme of today's episode, which really surrounds effective networking in general. Uh, and networking is sometimes used uh, almost as a buzzword to describe uh, a number of different activities. But but for you, it seems like working in venture capital, I imagine that your job uh, really requires a high level ability to, to network in order to source deals and find cutting edge technologies, whereas some people network uh, in a sense to look for their next job. So how do you view networking now 
And how do you think students or recent graduates should view networking early on in their career? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And there's, I, look, I don't think there's a recipe for it, but just some thoughts, right? Which is one thing I've always done and that I recommend for people to do is identify mentors. And being mentored or being a mentee is an active process. Don't be passive about it. Don't wait for someone to offer to be a mentor. You need to be, you need to actively seek mentorship. And a framework to think about that is find that person who looks like they're five years ahead of you that you think would have insight and actively seek them as a, someone like that as a mentor and do it for 10 years and do it for 15 years. And if you're young enough, do it for 20 years and 25 years, whatever. But do that as like a framework for and be active about it. That's that's the ground level. Yeah, I think that's some really great advice on how to grow your network in a way that in a direction that you want to move. Uh, but I'm also curious to know, especially as a VC, especially uh, running large groups of teams, especially leading biotech companies, you have to cultivate also the network that you already have. So my question to you is, um, do you have any tips on how you can cultivate your existing network, maybe of founders, maybe professors, maybe other people? Um, yeah, it's great. Really good question. A couple of pieces of advice. Um, you'll be surprised at how successful all of your Hopkins classmates would be over time. You'll be surprised. And don't, you know, treat treat them nicely. And uh and keep in touch with them because that will work. So that's just one because it's a, it's usually an unbelievable group and who will do fantastic things. Um, then it's don't be shy. You know, I'd say, um, I don't know, how do I actively think about it? I mean, it is a bit of a skill to be able to draw the lines between people that you know could get you to an introduction that you want, a point of expertise that you want, but start exercising that thinking. That's just, that's like network. When that, this is like interactum. This is like your human interactum. Start uh, contemplating that and store it, right? Oh, this person knows so-and-so. This person knows that. This person works here. I tend to think about people and I, even if I've forgotten their name, I, I, I remember what what papers they were involved with or who they trained with or, um, and then I try to sort of draw those connections with other things. So get act, that's another sort of active thinking to do. Um, and then, you know, nurturing your current network is, you know, there's the right balance and it's got to match your personality and things, but nowadays it's not hard to small. What are the trick in magic? In, in managing a large group of people, it's the same as maintaining a large network. Small, frequent doses of yourself to those members of your network, right? I'm not talking about just be superficial, just be superficial, but small, frequent doses um, keeps, keeps those things active. And, and try to store some of the details, right, if you, if you can. As you get a little bit older on things, it's, it is odd about how that's the stuff you kind of remember. 
So for our closing question here, giving you full creative license to prognosticate, uh, we understand that your po- portfolio companies capture a wide array of different therapeutic areas. But given your deep domain in neuroscience, where do you think the future of neuroscience therapeutics are headed? Well, I'm very I'm very bullish on neuroscience as a as an area of therapeutics generally. I think we're actively seeing sometimes it's hard to see it when you're in the midst of it, but I think we're in the midst of a big revolution and you see it happening a lot. If you just look at the last few years, look at the things we've got. I was involved in the global filing and launch of Spinraza, the first drug for spinal muscular atrophy that converted a, a universally fatal, paralyzing disease of infants is horrible into something where those infants who would be would have been dead before they were a year are now like eight, nine years old, walking and stuff. So, uh, so we've had that. We've had some of the first signs of clinical efficacy and things like uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. We've got new classes of drugs in esketamine for depression, which we hadn't had before. We've got the first ever drug approved for postpartum depression, which which is a, a very debilitating, dangerous, and deadly actually disease. And there's never been a drug for that. Uh, we've got we, we have a, we have a drug now for Parkinson's disease psychosis, which is where there'd never really been anything like that before. Uh, Break, breakthrough drugs in things like migraine and the anti-CGRPs, which are now a, a whole big class where they're uh, is brand new uh, on this. And so I think, and, and you see emerging clinical data for potential future things that that will be, you know, that have the prospect to be approved. I, I, I see signs of hope in certain genetic forms of ALS uh, tantalizing clinical data and genetic modalities and things like antisense oligonucleotides. Don't forget that the first approved gene therapy was in a retinal disease, which I include in neuroscience. Um, um, and I could go on and on and on about these things, but there have been many uh, in in the in just in the recent that. And what I was describing there is the last four years. That's just the last four years. And I and and there's going to be more, I think. So the science is really advancing, and uh, the the medical need is not going away. And I think when those two things really meet, it'll be a big opportunity. And you see it, by the way, you also see it in my current seat, which is you see that there's a lot, even though a lot, some big pharma have stepped away a bit from doing neuroscience. VC has not. Right. There's a lot of investment that's and even with an ATP, we've uh, we've certainly announced some of the companies we've made um, uh, where my colleagues have been particularly involved in more than me. So I think the future there is great in neuroscience. I would keep an eye on a lot of these genetic diseases, entry points and the advent of genetic modalities and stuff like that will you know, continue to have particular impact, I think, in CNS. Just as a very quick follow-up, like very quick. Um, So as you know, getting on this theme of drug discovery in neurosciences, approvals for neurological indications tend to be half of that, the success rate for 
other indications. So I guess from your perspective, not only as a neuroscientist and being trained as a medical doctor, but also working in VC, how do you approach evaluating whether a new neurodrug or target is likely to be successful? Yeah, I'd look at your data on that. I occasionally hear that, but in fact, and then people will say, well, oncology, look at all those things. But in fact, if you look at it as, if you take the denominator for the total number of drugs in development and trials, I, I'm not, I'm not so clear that that's the case. I think in oncology might even be lower than neuroscience in that way. So, um, but so I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's, that's really quite the case. Nonetheless, it's hard. It's hard. And so why in the, in the small biotech VC space, the, a priority is that you can invest in something, create a company or invest in a, existing company that can get as rapidly and in as capital efficient way as possible to clinical proof of concept. That's the name of the game. If you can, like, that's really key. And it just does turn out that, that in some cases you can do that, that um, in, in neuroscience, in other cases, it's hard. Uh, and it's hard because either the trials are really long because the disease progresses slowly, like in a lot of neurodegenerative diseases, or you don't have intermediate measures. So you need to develop intermediate measures or we're stuck with subjective endpoints. So the trick in neuro as an area is develop those intermediate measures and use the example of MS. MS, when I was at Hopkins, uh, starting as a MD PhD student, pretty much you got treated with steroids and that was it. And now there are probably 18 more approved drugs. There are at least a dozen or more different mechanisms. There are orals, there are biologics, and they're incredibly effective. And what really facilitated that? I'll tell you what facilitated that was that the proof that you could use an intermediate measure, namely the number of newly occurring gadolinium-enhancing lesions, as that, that that measure was highly predictive of clinical scales and clinical status. So once that was proven every subsequent trial, you knew what was gonna work. You knew that if you had an impact on newly occurring GAD enhancing lesions, it was going to be efficacious in relapsing remitting MS. And we need more of those kind of things. So that, that we need more of. Um, and that's where a better understanding of the neurobiology of that is going to is going to get us. And then a second key component on this is the subjective endpoints on things. So it's another thing why I do have confidence that the more we understand about how the brain works, the more that we can turn someone's pain scale from where are you on zero to 10 to a more objective measure that uh, predicts clinical output. Because ultimately regulators and patients and families they don't really care if your default mode network is more connected or less connected or whatever. They care whether or not your, your personal internal experience is, is and your day activities of daily living are impacted. So with the advent of a lot of intermediate measures that are really based on the biology that we understand it um, and uh, um, inter intersecting that with the new modalities I think that are coming together, that's going to be the recipe for a lot of success. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mike, for sharing your perspectives on 
uh, a really interesting career that you've had and and the role of venture capital and biotech and effective networking. Uh, thank you. That was great. It was my pleasure. Happy to do it. Thanks, you guys, for putting all this together. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcasts on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varelli. I'm Roshan Chikramain. And I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening.